We'll hear argument first this morning in 0684, Safeco Insurance Company versus Burr, and 06100, Geico General Insurance Company versus Edo. Ms. Mahoney? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to turn first to the Ninth Circuit's interpretation of the term willfully and its determination that the case had to be remanded for further proceedings to permit an opportunity to explore petitioners' communications with their counsel. We ask this Court to find that there is no necessity for any such inquiry for waivers of attorney-client privilege because summary judgment should have been affirmed in this case. Petitioners in their counsel, if you think about what communications you might find, they could not have known anything more about these statutory issues of first impression than the district court did. It's questions of law. And if the district court's opinion does not reflect reckless disregard for the law, for the reading of the statute, then it would be inappropriate to characterize petitioners' adoption of the very same views as either a knowing or reckless violation of the, of the uh, FCRA. The first, the, the, the Ninth Circuit nevertheless reached a contrary conclusion and said it was time to go ahead and look at privileged communications if the um, petitioners wanted to defend the case because they made several interpretive errors about the meaning of willfully. And the first is that they read willfully in this setting to mean recklessly and relied on several cases where this Court has read the term willfully in civil statutes to mean recklessly. But this Court has said repeatedly that the word willfully is contextual, that you have to look at all of the sections of the statute to see how it's used to determine whether it means with knowledge that your conduct violates the law or whether reckless violations are sufficient. And in this particular statute, unlike the other three that were at issue, Congress has used the term willfully in other sections of the law to mean, as plaintiffs concede, that the defendant knows that their conduct violates the act. Well, it's also used it, uh, in, in the phrase knowing and willful. That appears in several other parts of the statute. And that wouldn't make any sense if the only meaning of willful is, uh, is knowing. Well, it actually says willfully and, and knowingly. In, what, and, in one formulation or another, but it combines right. the two words, knowing and, and willful. Well, this Court, though, has held that willfully and knowingly, when that phrase is used together, it's been discussed in a number of cases, including Dixon recently, that it means, willfully means knowledge that the conduct violates the law, and knowingly means knowledge of the relevant facts. And that would make perfect sense in this setting. And so the term willfully, when again used... Well, you, you mean willfully alone? E- where, where, it, where it means what you think it means, which is knowingly, uh, that does not mean knowing the facts. Can, uh, can you, if you mistake the facts and are laboring under a misimpression of the facts, you have nonetheless willfully violated the law? Your, Your Honor, in Raff's laugh, the phrase was willfully, not willfully and knowingly, and the Court held that it meant 
um, that you knew that your conduct violated the law. And that seems to be the most reasonable reading here, because if you look, there are also sections of Section 1681N that refer to knowing conduct, and that would require the, the conclusion that Congress used willfully in this section to mean a, a, le, a, more, a less culpable mens rea than knowingly. And that's so, so that if you're uh, the, the CEO of your company and the lawyer, the general counsel comes in and says, We've got a real issue under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I need to brief you on that. We need to make an important decision about whether we're complying. You say, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. That would not be willfully violating the statute? Um, under uh, some, some cases have suggested that there can be a willful vi- uh, blindness instruction that would, uh, that would govern whether you define that as knowing or not. So it doesn't have to be actual knowledge. I I think that uh, the best reading of knowingly is actual knowledge or something that is is everything but, you know, that you you really — How about reckless disregard? Well, conscious disregard is a recklessness standard. And even if the the Ninth Circuit correctly determined that this should be interpreted as — a recklessness standard, this Court has defined recklessness to mean that it has to be conscious disregard, actual knowledge of a high risk of, of, of harm or, in this case, illegality. And in, in these circumstances, you can't say that there was a high risk of illegality because what the district court found is that the petitioner's interpretations of the statute were actually not only reasonable, but correct. Well, and having the term knowingly or knowing appears in two places in 1681N, can't we infer from that that willfully in that provision also means something different? I think the way it's used, it says uh, knowing, um, knowingly uh, that they did not have a permissible purpose. Permissible purpose, that may not be knowledge of the law. It just may be knowledge that your purpose wasn't permissible. And even if they were I using I thought the statute it, says what the permissible purposes are. It does, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the individual knew precisely what the statute said, because, for instance, uh, users are told what the permissible purposes are when they get a credit report from uh, from a, uh, a credit agency. But, but more importantly, Your Honor, I think that the use of the term knowingly there can also be explained if you look at Section 1681H. Uh, it actually provides that certain tort actions uh, cannot proceed unless there is a, a willful intent to injure, except as provided in Section 1681N. And they're the same kinds of actions that are carved out in 1681N. And so I think it was to make clear, I think it was to make clear that you didn't have to have a willful intent to injure. Uh, so even if they meant it to be interchangeable with a knowing violation of the law there, I think there was a reason for it. It wasn't just surplusage. It was to clarify that they didn't have to have a willful intent to violate. Would you say it's all right to use the model penal code definition of reckless, which is basically what you're taking it here. You'd have to consciously disregard a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the action is unlawful. That's correct, Your Honor. Have you come across anything that would use that. I mean, re- reckless itself is unclear. The model penal code tried to uh, clarify it based on this Court's opinions primarily. I think you can look to the way this Court described recklessness in Farmer versus Brennan as well, though, uh, as well as — What's the difference? 
the difference is just there's two forms of recklessness, one which uh, says that if the risk is uh, sufficiently um, high, if a person should have known, you could be, you could be liable. Uh, but that the form of recklessness that Congress presumably used here in this setting, where there is the potential for very um, punitive sanctions, was what is referred to, Farmer versus Brennan calls it, criminal, the criminal recklessness standard. And that means that it, not only do you have to have an objectively high risk of illegality, but you must be actually conscious of that risk. But in this case, you don't even need to get to the issue of Wait, So there's no way they couldn't have been conscious of the risk here. I mean, after all, that's why they went to lawyers. They know there's a risk that this is unlawful. Uh, the question is — Consciousness, I, I mean, maybe it should come in in the standard, but I don't know that it would help you. Well, I think that the, the issue on conscious the, — the issue of the risk, though, is, is it has to be a high risk. And if it is a reasonable interpretation of the statute, or even if it is just an interpretation of the statute that is fairly debatable, that you have a fair chance of success, then how can you say that is a high risk of illegality, so high, that we should say that Congress wanted to sanction you for taking that position? And uh, for saying that, you know, you shouldn't be permitted to adopt a compliance program as long if there was a, a fair ground for believing that it was lawful. And here what the Ninth Circuit did. Suppose there, there is a fair ground for believing it was lawful. Uh, lawyers are in disagreement. But, in fact, I believe the, the lawyers who say it is unlawful. And I nonetheless go ahead and do it. Is that a willful violation? I don't, th- I don't think so, Your Honor, if, in fact, it was a fair ground for a reason. Oh, but I think I'm violating it. Well, but I don't. I, right. Yes. But you couldn't know you were violating it, and you could, because if it really is a fair ground for litigation. I'm a better lawyer than my advisors. <laughs> Your and- Honor, I think if it's an area where the law is truly unsettled, and here, an, an issue of first impression, a lawyer's assessment that you may lose is, is inherently predictive. These are not true or false answers when there's almost nothing to go on. And so in that area, it's much like what this court did in, in Screws, where it said that uh, this was a case involving a, a willful violation of uh, or interference with rights secured by, by federal law. And, and what the court says, well, it's not just any bad purpose that Congress had in mind. It is a bad purpose to defy announced rules of law. They have to be, there has to be sufficient clarity in the law to say that there was a high risk of illegality that you could disregard. But would you look to the subjective uh, intent of the actor at all? Uh, or would you just look to the outcome and say, well, you know, it was a close question. So even if the actor indeed thought he was in violation, it was a close question, it's okay. Uh, I, I don't think you would look at the intent until you found that there, there was uh, no reasonable ground or at least no, no, no fair ground for debate about the question. And at that point, Your Honor, if there was an objectively high risk of illegality, then you do have to ask, what were they consciously aware of? What I, did I must they do? That, 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 that is not the normal meaning of willful, willfully violating the law. Well, I think you're, it's you're changing it to mean willfully, uh, willfully and blatantly violating the law. I don't think I so. I mean, if I know that what I'm doing is in violation of the law, even if it's a close question, it seems to me I'm willfully violating the law. Your Honor, Scrooge says you can't know the unknowable. And if the law, if it's really truly an issue of first impression, you may think you're violating the law, but you, you can't know the unknowable. And that's why this setting is so important, because uh, you, you can't, you know, put, impose sanctions. Here we're talking about 
the potential for an industry facing billions of dollars in what, without any actual harm uh, to, to individuals. And is, that, and is it really billions? How many of these no. have been certified as class actions? Uh, I believe that there is t- two certified class actions, but many of, there are many cases pending, and it could be billions of dollars, Your Honor, um, certainly if the classes are certified. And, uh, would, you, and I, would you, as a representative uh, of the insurers, would you have a sound objection to class action certification? In these cases, uh, Your Honor, I, I'm sure there would be some some bases to resist, but but classes have been certified, uh, so I've I gone to gone to judgment. I do not believe any have gone to judgment, um, but I don't I don't I think that the the point is that if you allow a thousand dollar penalty or the potential for a thousand dollar penalty for every consumer who didn't uh, get a notice simply because. Uh, they, they may have gotten a better price if they had even better credit uh, across the country. If you interpret the statute that way and then say you can get this $1,000, what is in essence a penalty, and you multiply that by the number of consumers, then you certainly have the potential for very, very substantial liability. It's, it's a question how many will sue for $1,000 given the litigation costs? Well, given, given that these are proceeding as class actions, the answer is there's plenty on the line to incentivize uh, plaintiff's attorneys to bring these class actions, and they have been brought. And this is a class action. There's two class it, actions. It, it, they haven't, neither has been certified, has it? No, it has not. They're putative class actions, Your Honor. But, but I think that whether it's a class action or not, we have to look at what did, what did Congress presumably have in mind when it authorized these kinds of penalties and punitive damages based on a willful violation in a technical area where there's no potential for harm. And I have just two, two questions on, on, on willful, and, and then because you may want to talk about the other issue in the case. Uh, first, you began by saying that uh, here a district judge has, has, has come to the contrary conclusion. By definition, it can't be reckless. Uh, do you have any authority where we've, for, for that proposition, where we have said that? Well, we find uh, all the time that the right is not clearly established under AEDPA and, and so forth, and disregard what judges say. That's, that's my first question. And, and the second uh, is. Um, Willfully, as, as Screws itself makes very clear, is interpreted differently in the criminal context than it is in the civil context. Except Screws, Your Honor, actually says that it was adopting a criminal recklessness standard, not a knowing standard, but a reckless standard. And that is the same standard that has been applied in the civil cases that use willfully in the punitive damage context. So I think it's exactly the same standard, and that Screws does say that the, the, that you can't have it can't just be a bad purpose. That it has to have been a bad purpose to violate clearly defined rules. And this court has said in various contexts in the uh, in the qualified immunity area that picking the losing side does not mean that your conduct uh, was uh, objectively you know wrongful. And that's really I think that there's great significance to the district court's ruling. I'm not saying that in every case it would absolutely be dispositive. I think you have to look at what was the you know the clarity of the law, what was the reasoning of the district court. But what the Ninth Circuit did is it in essence said that you can't rely on uh, creative but unlikely answers to issues of first impression. Well, if an administration official goes uh, to a lawyer uh, in the administration and asks about a course of 
conduct and is told, well, it's completely an issue of first impression. There's probably a 40 percent chance of success. Do you say that's reckless to proceed on that basis? Well, just because an issue is one of first impression doesn't mean that there's a high degree of uncertainty. The statute may be clearly addressed to that issue. Hasn't come up before. Absolutely, first Your impression. Honor. First it, it, it certainly it, — this Court has made clear that if the language of a statute is uh, is very plain, then, of course, that can be noticed. That can be adequate warning. But certainly this statute doesn't satisfy that standard. Congress didn't provide the benchmarks that you have to use for comparison to determine whether the, there has been an increase in a charge or whether there's been an adverse action based on the consumer report. You need benchmarks to answer those questions. And there aren't any regulations, and there were no cases. If I could save the balance of my time for reading. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Millett. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals correctly concluded that willfulness in the civil context is used here includes a reckless disregard component or a recklessness component. That is what this Court has held in a number of cases that have similar uses of willfulness focused on a departure from the law, have held Thurston, Richland Shoe, and Hazen Paper are the three that have been most discussed in the case in, in the papers here. Um, but where the Ninth Circuit misstepped here was in the application of that standard. And in particular, we agree with petitioners that when it concluded that a creative but unlikely position constitutes recklessness, it erred. Recklessness bespeaks an extreme deviation from an ordinary standard of care. It requires that the defendant act in, in the face of or Is it a subjective standard or an objective standard? It, it has both in this context. It is, I think, first and foremost, an objective component, um, because there, this, is, this is a civil case. It's not purely subjective. Um, and that objective component is very important, because that is what makes the act or inaction um, reckless, and that is the risk. There has to be an objectively high and so, obvious so risk. So the potential liability, as in these cases, is huge then you have to be even more careful because there's liability so great. So is it the greater the liability, the greater chance of recklessness, the greater the potential liability? No, to the extent you're talking about dollar liability, I don't think that's true. I do think it's fair to say that in recklessness, generally in the tort law, um, the more serious an injury that could result um, can will tolerate less risk. If, if, if the risk is causing serious bodily, bodily injury or death to somebody, Will to- the law will tolerate a lesser um, degree of risk than it will if, um, if it's simply causing, you know, a delay in, in something or a, a sort of paper injury or maybe even a dollar injury. So, and it, it's not set. I mean, it, it's, it's a variable um, calculation. So in, in that sense it is. I don't think that, that when we talk about a high and objective risk in this context, we're talking about the dollars that a, that a company would have to pay, although I'm sure they're interested in hearing about that from their lawyers. What we're talking about here is, and this is a very unusual statute, the way it's written, that the liability itself, not just the damages, but the liability itself, turns upon the extent of departure from law. You have to, there's no recovery here like there is in almost, commonly in federal statutes, for just a violation. That isn't it. You have to show either a willful violation or a negligent violation, and that requires a determination not only that the defendants violated the law, but a determination as to how much, 
how far, how many standard deviations from correct their position was, and that is an objective determination. Once an objectively high risk has been found by a court, then, then, then the case can shift to looking into subjective things. I think a plaintiff would be entitled, once an objectively high uh, and obvious risk has been found by the court, to rely on that and allow a jury to, or a judge, whoever is deciding the case, to infer the existence of willfulness from that. And that's often when defendant — I'm sorry. May I also ask, do you agree with the petitioner on the meaning of adverse action? No, we agree with respondents on the meaning of adverse action. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You think if I have an insurance policy, I'm paying a certain rate, they look at my credit report and they say, you know, good news, we're going to lower your rates, that's an adverse action. It, it would because they might have lowered the rates even further if, if they'd notified me about the credit report and there were some errors in it. Well, I, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated answer, in part because that assumes that you have an existing account and you're not an initial account here. And when you have an existing account, there's the definition of adverse action for insurance provisions, but in Little Roman numeral 4, um, there is a separate, there's another definition, and this is on, on page Sorry, excuse me. Um, on page 3A of the, the appendix to our brief, Roman numeral 4, and the big I, I'm sorry, there's a lot of provisions, talks about uh, reviewing an existing account. And it cross-references another, another provision which talks about reviewing an account for purposes of terminate, termination. And that would include, in our view, not only completely canceling it, but terminating the existing thing and charging you more for saying you now need to pay a new rate. So which would govern in that particular context is a little bit harder. But it, it, it could, and here's logically why, because I think the understanding of increase um, that's at issue here is, is one that's very basic to the operation of this statute, and that is, did the content of your information in your credit report, if it had been better, could you have had a better rate or a better right. deal? So if they, lower, the if, they, if they lower the rates, you still say that that fits the meaning of adverse action because they might have lowered them further if the information hadn't been erroneous. It, it could have. And here, in, in this sense, it could be adverse. In the same way that in my — this is sort of the flip side, but in my office, if, every, if everybody in the hallway gets a 5 percent salary increase and I only get a 1 percent salary increase, I am certainly better off. But if the reason I got a lesser increase is because of my gender or because of my credit report, it's an adverse action. So the fact that you're doing somewhat better doesn't That isn't how the statute defines it. Excuse me? The statute says an adverse action is an increase in a charge for in connection with underwriting. But also in it says, and then it says an increase is, uh, and if you take an adverse action, i.e., if you increase it, and your increase is based in whole or in part on information contained in a consumer report, you have to send uh, uh, the, the, the thing. Well, how, how did you get in your example? There was no increase. Uh, I mean, uh, well, the in charge I, in your salary, it's a decrease in the salary. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's, the, the definition, again, I'm on 3A, includes not just increase, but also includes an unfavorable change in the terms. And so, and as I said, it's, it's not settled whether... Oh, you mean an unfavorable change in terms. Unfavorable change in terms. Exactly. Well, suppose you don't have, uh, you don't have any terms because uh, you never did it before. There's no change in terms. 
if, if, you're, a, if you're a new customer. And, first, yes. and again, I want to I reiterate that how this apply, adverse action applies to existing counts. You need to have those words change in terms refer to rates, in other words. That's a rather odd way to refer to it. In one place you would refer to it increase, and the other place you'd refer to it as a change in terms. That's a sort of odd way to write a statute. Well, you, you, can have, you can have a change in terms that is not necessarily an increase. It could be you will no longer be entitled to a free rental car when your car is no, no, there for some that. reason. That's what what we're after is this. Yeah, but, uh, the, 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 uh, everybody has a credit report just about. You put it in and you give people the best possible rate conceivable. And now how do you know that maybe there could have still been a better rate? And, and it can't be that this statute intends you to send out notices in such circumstances, or you'd have to send notices whenever you read a credit report. I think that's — I've overstated slightly, but that's basically the argument. So and, what's your response? And, Justice Breyer, my response is that if the, if the content of the information in your credit report would have made you — if it had been better information, you'd have gotten a better rate, a better result. Your pocketbook couldn't have been hit as hard. You had a dollar and cents injury because no. of the content of your information. Then you have okay, had an so adverse response action. response is just to repeat my question and say that's right. No, if I could continue and add — if I could add on — if I could add on, the way insurance companies work is they don't have three million customers and three million rates. They have ranges. And most of them will have a top tier. I mean, they may have specialized things for employees. But putting aside a specialized category, there's a top range, and they will tell you, and they say in the briefs, that 10 to 15 percent of people said it fit in there. So they know what the best rate is. They know what the ne- next, you know, above average rate, the standard rate. How, how, do you fit, how do you fit that within the language of the statute? Is it — I, I, I failed. You're, you're a first-time customer, and I failed to give you a, uh, you know, a, a break that, that, that maybe you could have had. Is it a denial or cancellation of insurance? No. Is it an increase in an increase in any charge for insurance? Is it a reduction or other adverse or unfavorable change in the terms of coverage or in the amount? Of any insurance, I, I, I find it hard to shoe, shoehorn your 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 case into that language. Well, uh, to begin with, that may be why petitioner's position here certainly was not reckless, and the Ninth Circuit erred. But we do think um, that the statutory language, read as a whole, supports this. It could be a denial of a particular term in an insurance contract, but you have to look. At, it's important to understand. You look. Well, I, I read the term as, <coughs> as as one of the justices here does, uh, not referring to the rate. The, the, the earlier part refers to the rate, an increase in any charge for that's the rate. And then it speaks of uh, changing the terms of coverage. I mean, that is, you know, whether it covers hurricanes or in the amount of the insurance, whether you're, you're insured. Or it could be a reduction in the terms. I mean, these things are statutory construction issues to be litigated. And the important issue here, and they are presented in this case, and they're to be litigated, and the important issue is that when there is fair debate about these issues, insurance companies will not be held to be willfully violating the statute if they got the answer wrong. But I think on the, on the substantive question, it's important to read adverse action in light of if I could just finish the sentence. In light of the definition of when a notice is required <clears throat> to be issued, which turns upon the content of the information in the report. Which and, is where? And that's on page 6A of our appendix. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Shore. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When Congress intended to require a knowing violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it expressly said so. 
It did not do so in connection with the claims here under Section 1681NA1A. In each instance where Congress wanted to allow to require a higher mens rea, it said so and did so in connection with liability that was greater. It required knowing uh, mens rea for the criminal provision. It required knowing mens rea to obtain the even higher statutory damages that are available under the Act. What do do you say to the uh, argument from drafting history that uh, looks at the history both of of little n and little o, uh, and and it points out that in the original bill, little o providing for the actual damages uh, required a a, a finding of gross negligence. Uh, Little n used the word willful just as it does now, suggesting that willful would not include gross negligence or something close to gross negligence uh, uh, like recklessness. Then in, then, in, then in O, they changed the standard from gross negligence to mere negligence, but they made no change in N, which suggests that N stayed whatever it always was. And if the argument from contrast was that N probably meant knowing rather than reckless, it stayed knowing, even when the standard was changed to negligence uh, in O. What do you say to that argument? Justice Souter, I think the only thing we can say about that is Congress reduced the culpability uh, for the actual damages from gross negligence to negligence. I don't think that tells us much about willful mean, what willful means is a separate but it, matter. But the fact that they originally drafted in as it is, in contrast to the original O, does tell us, doesn't it, something about what they had in mind in N, and they must have had something in mind, probably had in mind something in N, uh, which was a standard higher uh, than gross negligence. No, Justice Souter, I'd suggest that what you can infer from that is that, if anything, is perhaps Congress wanted to move, uh, make clear that under O, the actual damages aren't close to willful or reckless, so they reduce gross negligence to negligence in that circumstance, but still doesn't tell us separately what willful meant. And, of course, willful had been interpreted by this Court uh, in similar cases involving similar statutes to mean a knowing or reckless disregard. And I respectfully disagree. Well, I mean, there's no question. It it, it has been, and and that is sort of the usual uh, reading in the civil context. But we also keep repeating, you know, willful is a word of many meanings. uh, And you, you always look to the context. And here the argument is that if you look to the context of, of, the, of, the, of the two statutory sections uh, right up next to each other, uh, you, you can draw a, 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 an, an inference about what willful means. I think, if anything, Justice Souter, here the context should be the actual statutory terms used. And in Section 1681 NB, expressly required the knowing standard. And that's a knowing violation of the law, as Justice Alito's question seemed to draw out a knowing impermissible purpose, and the statute directly defines what are permissible purposes under this law. So that, that reference to knowing could not refer to a knowing, knowing the facts. And, of course, willful in some sense always includes some knowledge of the factual circumstances. In addition, the logical structure of the Act, as I mentioned, uh, we have negligence and actual damages. Uh, we have a reckless standard, a knowing or reckless standard uh, for certain statutory damages, but then an even higher level uh, for the criminal and higher statutory penalty provisions. 
And as I started to say, a willful knowing uh, reckless standard is entirely consistent with how this Court has interpreted the term in similar civil statutes that were, in fact, passed about the same time. And the Hazen Paper case and Thurston and McLaughlin cases interpreting the ADA uh, and the FLSA involving well, similar Counsel, purposes. even if you're right about the standard, how can you suggest that it's willful here when you have no judicial construction, you have no administrative construction, you have the statutory language that at least the questions this morning have suggested is not perfectly clear? How can you suggest that the action of the companies on this case, even under your standard, was, was willful? Mr. Chief Justice, of course, we believe, and we, the statute is, in fact, clear, and you do not need uh, further interpretation by the Court. So if we don't agree with you on that, you would lose on the, on the application of the willfulness standard? If you don't agree with your, 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 your conclusion that this was a willful violation depends upon your assertion that the statute is perfectly clear. I think that there is a level of objective component that the statute at least has to be understood. Uh, by a reasonable person at some level using standard aids of statutory construction. But that isn't to suggest that the statute needs to be interpreted by a higher court or even the district court uh, for counsel to get guidance. And, of course, in this case, there was no guidance supporting respondents' position, excuse me, no guidance supporting petitioners' defendants' position. In fact, the only guidance supported our position, including guidance from the FTC. You're talking about the ball letter? I am talking about the ball letter. That wasn't even binding on the Commission, so why would that be regarded as authoritative? It, it was not, and we are not suggesting it is or that it's entitled to Chevron deference, but if you get past the minimum level of objective standard, the question becomes what indicia and markers were out there that would have guided this company as to whether there was a high risk that they were violating the Act. And certainly the ball letter, which was sent by the staff specifically to address this exact question and to guide insurance companies, uh, gave notice. And it said charging anyone a higher amount than the best available rate based on their credit score was an adverse action. And in addition, there was FTC. How could that be? I mean, I agree that the statute's clear, but I think it's clear the other way. That is, uh, if, you, if you look at the language, as you've just heard, if you look at the purpose, it's very hard to reconcile with the purpose uh, an instance where uh, a person uh, has continuous accidents, he's a reckless driver, the insurance company puts him in just category below the bottom, and they read his credit report. And they discover, despite his faults, he always pays his bills on time. So they increase it, not to the top category, but they give him a bit much better deal. And you're saying this statute means that what I just described is an adverse action based on a credit report. Yes. I mean, yes, okay. And And then if you're going to say yes, I want to hear why yes, and then in light of the following. The little boy who says wolf you probably be puzzled what I mean by that. I mean that if you're right in that interpretation, there will be tens of millions of notices going out, and they'll have the same effect on the public that these privacy notices have today. You get them every day, dozens of them, and they go right in the wastebasket because they will become meaningless, because to an average person, that notice will not mean that he better look at his credit report. It'll mean throw it in the wastebasket. All right, now, I've got the purpose, I have the language, and I have what I think of as common sense. 
Now, you explain why it's obvious the opposite. This is a different question. You, we've been talking about willful up till now. Yes, and this is we the have, adverse You haven't question. addressed adverse action at all. And I'm happy to do so now. And you, yes, but was there anything further on willful? You said that uh, the, the statute was clear enough and you had the FTC informal advice, but now we know that courts have divided on this question, right? On what the Divided in the sense, well, the Ninth Circuit, of course, overturned the district court's ruling, so there's no current division, but if that's what you mean, yes, Your Honor. Uh, in a, and I guess I'll address quickly your question. There's additional guidance provided by the FTC that was subject to formal rulemaking, and that was 16 CFR, I believe it's part 601, Appendix C. And in that uh, instance, the FTC, again subject to formal notice and comment rulemaking, said that the statute is defined very broadly and includes any action that can even be considered to have a negative impact. And that plays in the subjective aspect as well. But addressing uh, your question, Justice Breyer, first, on the statutory language sloppy lawyering, don't you think? Any action that can even be considered to have Wow. This is a standard? That was Any action that can even be considered to have a negative impact. That was guidance, Your Honor. This is guidance? That was guidance. <laughs> that was guidance to provide that in the context of reading the statute, it should be read broadly. But, you know, I, I would tell my CEO to ignore that, that it's meaningless. In addition, the CEO would have the guidance provided by the ball letter. But, again, addressing your question, Justice Breyer, an increase based on credit, if we had, let's say, an increase based on race, someone goes in and has a product to buy, and there's the best rate, and they charge someone else based on their race a higher rate, certainly that's an increase based on credit. There's only one best but this rate. This is not an anti-discrimination provision. It doesn't say anyone who discriminates in the uh, setting of rates uh, has to send out letters. It requires an adverse action. It requires an increase in the charge. And, and Your Honor, I was only using that example to try and explain the statutory it explain language. It because if you have an increase in the charge based on race, of course, that's an increase based on race. Well, here we have and if you refuse to give a person the best rate and lower his rate, but not the best rate, based on race, that is not an increase based on race. That is discrimination based on race. You're charging someone more uh, based on right, credit. That's true, and it's a discrimination. But you didn't increase the rate. You decreased it. I, I think a natural still a discrimination. It's still unlawful. Applying it to credit, a natural definition that is charging someone more uh, than you charge others is an increase. Well, when you and say more, in order for there to be an adverse action, there has to be an increase or an unfavorable change. And when you have an initial application, you have to figure out what is the baseline in order to determine whether there's been an increase or an adverse action. And you and the Solicitor General just assert that the baseline in that situation is the best possible rate that you can get. But I don't understand where that comes from. Because charging someone more than someone else 
who qualifies for that better rate based on their credit is increasing them, charging them more. But it's also evident from the statutory purpose, which I think was a question you had. Wait, wait, it's a language. Go back and give me up. Because in ordinary English, which I hope I speak, it is not an increase. But maybe there is a technical term in the technical language of commercial law or in FTC law where the word increase means decrease. And if you — is there anything you want — no, I'm, but the serious question is, is, do you want to cite me to th- some authority that uses this word increase in the way you just suggested? We believe it's a, a standard di- dictionary definition to charge someone more for insurance uh, than they would otherwise qualify for is char- increasing their charge. Which dictionary insurance? shall I look at? I think we can look at any dictionary. I don't have a site, Your Honor. But Aren't you making this argument, and I think you got close to it a minute ago when you alluded to statutory purpose. I think this is what's behind, and you tell me if I'm wrong. One purpose of the statute is to alert a consumer that the consumer's credit report may contain errors which are doing the consumer some kind of damage. Yes, Your Honor. And you want this consumer alerted so the consumer can ask to see the report and correct it, if possible. That's exactly right. Reading the, the adverse action the way you read it would give the consumer or consumers a tip-off in the maximum number of cases. Uh, in every case in which the consumer might have done better if the credit report had assumed different facts, on your reading, theoretically, the consumer is going to say, I want to look at that report and correct it if it's wrong. But isn't the fallacy of that argument, the, the fallacy of saying, because that is one object of the statute, every term within the statute has got to be read in a way uh, that maximizes the effectuation of that object. And the trouble that we're having on the bench is, uh, that discrimination and increase are different terms. Increase says the rate actually goes up from a baseline that the consumer previously had, whereas discrimination does not. In your reading, in effect, increase to mean discrimination in order to maximize the likelihood that the consumer will look at the report. Isn't that the basis of your argument? I think uh, — it has to be an increase based on some aspect, but the only way to give effect to that statutory purpose is an increase above what you would otherwise qualify for had you had better credit. And of well, course- that's, that's a way to give every conceivable effect to that policy. But the statute in, in drafting adverse or, or drafting the terms of adverse action may very well have said, we don't want to give every conceivable effect to this purpose, because if we do, we'll get into the situation that Justice Breyer described. Everybody will be getting notices, and the notices will be meaningless. I don't think the notice is problematic, because you're alerting the consumer to check that the information that the insurance company expressly relied on to increase your charge uh, to set the charge. I mean, even starting to set the charge that it gives you. I don't think you need a prior charge to suffer an increase. If I walk into a candy store and I've never purchased that candy before, and the best price that day is five cents, but they say, we're going to charge you ten cents, I've certainly suffered an increase. You're talking linguistically, but I am interested in the purpose. So I looked up on the Internet uh, approximately what percent of the people 
have the best credit score, and that's about 1 percent. So 99 percent of the public doesn't have the best possible credit score. Now, I take it that means that you could, in fact, if it's even roughly right, have 99 percent or a little less or even perhaps a little more when they look at that report, that that since it's not perfect in 99 percent of the cases, it's quite possible that they won't get the best conceivable rate, which might be reserved for just perfect people. And if that's so, in 99 percent of the cases, they'll send out notices. And that's why I asked my question about the boy who calls Wolf. What will happen if 99 percent of the people who apply for insurance or any other thing get notices? I suspect that this is only intuitive, that the notices are more likely to go into the wastebasket than they are if there was really a decrease. Now, do you have any light you can shed on that? Sure. The — as an initial matter, it's not the perfect credit that is the standard. It's whatever will qualify you for GEICO's best rate. And that's a much broader standard. We don't know the exact amounts, but if you look at GEICO JA 6768, they have fairly broad tiers, maybe five or six. And, of course, not everyone's going to get the notice. If your driving record entirely eliminates — if you have great credit, but your driving record eliminates the possibility that you qualify for the better rate, you wouldn't get notice in that circumstance either. But the key to the notice is, if I have very good credit, uh, but the information that the insurance company looks at is incorrect, I will be charged more based on incorrect information without ever having the opportunity to tell the insurance company or whoever's collecting that information for them, you've charged me the wrong amount, and I, in fact, qualify. Don't, don't uh, you have that right in a, independently, though, every year to look at a copy of your credit report? Well, what's significant here, that, that has been added to the statute in the last few years. But since 1970, Congress's concern is giving notice at a critical time when the insurance company tells you we're relying on it, and we may have taken an adverse action. I wanted to also mention here it's not just an increase. There's also been a denial and that Mr. Ito applied for insurance from GEICO uh, and was denied insurance with the standalone company, GEICO General. So that is also an adverse action under when the you Act. say you look at the increase with respect to what the best credit rate, why is that? Why wouldn't you look at it relative to, say, the average uh, insured uh, who walks in the door? Because that GEICO's argument, and I think that's what they want, presumes they're looking at accurate credit information. And the problem is Congress was always told that there are significant inaccuracies in the credit uh, information. I think it's cited in the National Consumer Law Center brief. In 1996, Congress was told that the error rate in consumer information was 50 percent, and there was a 20 percent serious error uh, in the rate. So under GEICO's interpretation — I don't understand what pertinence that has to my question, which is why do you get to pick — the best credit report as the baseline from which you would measure your hypothetical increase? Because under GEICO's uh, theory of the statute, you may never get notice, even though you're being charged more for insurance based on inaccurate information, as long as you're not char- your charge doesn't move below average. So a lot of people who are, in fact, uh, intended to be protected under this Act will not be protected until their charge goes below average, even though the insurance company is continuing to charge them more based on inaccurate Why do we — how do we know that they were intended to be protected in this way by getting this notice? That's the issue in the case. Because 
going through the statute and the increase uh, based on credit, and then the notice will give them the opportunity to check. The, the consumer here is the — it's a system of checks and balances. And unless you give this consumer the opportunity to check that they're, in fact, using the correct information, wasn't mistaken, wasn't driven down by identity theft, you can continue to charge people more. Okay, but that, that your basic argument is the statute, uh, the, 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 the definitions of adverse action have got to be read in a way that maximizes the occasion upon which a consumer will get a notice that may lead that consumer to ask to see his credit uh, report. That's your basic premise. Both based on the text and purpose of the statute, yes. Um, Briefly addressing uh, the application of the standard uh, to the facts in this case, we do think it's appropriate to remand for further consideration in light of some new developments. GEICO has just recently produced documents to us that addressly, uh, directly address the question of scienter here. Uh, so if there's — if you go past a minimum I, I threshold — I read the, uh, your reference to those documents. Explain why you think that's so, so important. Be, because those documents directly address the subjective standard here, that — Geico was reckless or understood How they were violating. did those documents shed any light on recklessness? I didn't, I didn't see that. I'm sorry, Your Honor. How do the documents that you described shed any light on the extent of their recklessness, if any? I, I want to be careful because I've presented, I've asked to lodge them with the court, and I can quote them if necessary, but within those documents, uh, there is direct evidence that Geico interpreted the statute exactly how we do, that not putting someone in the best tier Who's who's GEICO? I mean, you're talking about particular lawyers at a particular level on an ongoing debate about what this uh, law means. If you get one lawyer who says, you know, I think you could read it this way, does that mean that GEICO reads it that way? Uh, No, Your Honor. In this instance, this document involves top-level GEICO executives. And with respect to the advice of counsel issue, frankly, it's a red herring. We've never asked to compel the defendants in either of these cases or any of the cases we're involved in to waive their privilege. They've got the right, of course, to offer uh, advice of counsel as an affirmative, as a defense in this case, uh, but it, we don't believe it's necessary to prove our case to even reach what the counsel said. We believe we can prove our case based on the documents and the subjective intent alone. I still don't really understand this, this part of the case very much. To assume there's a lawyer writes a letter saying you read it two or three different ways, read this statute, it's very ambiguous. Uh, we think the, the government's reading is the better reading. And, and the, 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 the executives think about it and decide, no, we don't think that's right. Has that proved reckless disregard? If the statute was clear and the If guidance- the statute's clear, and of course, uh, Ms. Mahoney says, uh, the district judge thought it was clear, but the other way. And with respect to the district court, we believe the district court here clearly erred, as the Ninth Circuit found. And the guidance, that opinion certainly didn't precede the conduct that was issued here. The only guidance, again, available at the time supported our reading of the statute. There was no guidance uh, from any court or from the FTC or from anywhere that would have supported defendants' interpretation at that time. So that's another aspect uh, of inquiry into the subjective intent of the defendants. There are no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Ms. Mahoney, you have four minutes remaining. 
If I could start by just responding to the issue of the new document, uh, I just want to emphasize that this uh, document was created by people who weren't lawyers. It was done before GEICO even started using credit to price insurance. They said they were brainstorming about what the statute might mean. And I would point the Court to uh, the supplemental excerpt of records at 504, where when GEICO implemented the policy that we're talking about here, uh, the, they said that the intent was that we would send to the people who were supposed to get the adverse action notice. With the early systems development, we didn't have the ability to identify whether they were supposed to receive the notice or not. That was because they had not yet developed the way to do with what they call the neutral, where they compare uh, how the applicant would have done if they hadn't, take credit, hadn't taken credit into account at all. And this is a procedure that's uh, required, actually, in uh, most states in order to ensure that those who don't want to allow access to credit reports or who don't have a sufficient credit history are not treated adversely in in the meaning of those state laws, and that means worse than uh, the average loss ratio. So there's nothing in this record, even if you take into account the document they're talking about, to suggest that there was somehow a knowing or deliberate intent to try to violate the law. With respect to a few of the uh, factual or or, uh, issues that came up, uh, Safeco estimates that approximately 80 percent of all consumers that they are selling uh, new insurance to now have to get notice under the standards established by the Ninth Circuit. Uh, With respect to uh, who can qualify for the top tier of credit, uh, it's uh, only, at least at GEICO, approximately uh, 10 percent, so 90 percent of the consumers uh, would not qualify for that. And uh, the statute very plainly does not prohibit a differential treatment based on persons with better credit, nor do state laws. And so the analogies to race discrimination simply don't hold water because there Congress has told you what the baseline is. You can't treat any person of a different race in a different way. And that's not true under this statute. And instead, it's quite reasonable, uh, as Geico has concluded, to simply say, look, if, if we wouldn't if, we are, if we're treating you worse than we would have treated you if we ever looked at your credit report, worse than if you had a, an average loss ratio for this criteria. Why do they use the credit notes? reports? Is it uh, just uh, a hedge against late premiums and, and the cost of late premiums, or does it bear on risk factors generally? Well, generally, uh, there are about 15 factors that they look at to try to come up with uh, a, a prediction of, uh, of, of loss ratio. And someone who has a good credit history is generally uh, regarded as risk Responsible and responsible people tend to make less claims. May and I so, it's, this, again, just one factor of 15, though. Yeah. May I ask this question? I, the reading of the statute in uh, subsection I about in, in uh, uh, charges for insurance advice seems to favor your view, but the subsection double I about denial of employment really seems to read in favor of, of the government's reading. Well, actually, I think that when you factor in employment, it, it has um, — It has the opposite effect, because what happens here is if you're using employment verification reports, consumer reports about employment, there are all kinds of consumer reports. How do you tell uh, who had the optimal employment history? How could the baseline be um, the best employment history possible? My point is it seems to me that getting a lesser salary, uh, just as the first applicant, would be an adverse employment action under subparagraph double I, just — do you see what I'm trying to say? That if you — that, in other words, if you gave someone a, a, uh, a lower salary 
it adversely affects any current or prospective employee. Now, the language in, in I isn't — it doesn't read that way, but the, my, the thing that's troubling me is whether you should interpret I in the light of what a double I seems to say. Uh, Your Honor, I think that if, if uh, GEICO, uh, in this example, if you actually pay them less because you looked at their credit report, then GEICO would concede that that is, in fact, an adverse action. So I don't think it's inconsistent at all. Thank you. Your Thank Honor. you, Ms. Mahoney. The case is submitted.